0: Oh, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It's great to see you this morning. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus? Leviticus chapter 18 is going to be one of those kind of Sundays. <laughs> if you're visiting us for the first time, I want to welcome you. So glad that you're here. hope you feel comfortable a little bit this morning. My name is Nathan. I'm on the pastoral staff. I want to give you a little insight into what it's like to be a pastor you have one of those kind of friends that has this innate ability to get you to do things that you don't really want to do. You have one of those, one of those friends, they say, hey, you want to go on a hike? You're like, yeah, I'd like to go on a hike. And it turns out to be 20 miles up the sheer cliffs. You end up at 23,000 feet with the oxygen mask. Those, crampon feet, uh, those crampons are on your feet. You're looking down the sheer cliffs. You don't want to fall down it. And your oxygen tanks are running low. And... I don't want to be here anymore. You know, friends that can get you to do stuff like that. You know, they say, hey, you want to go have fun? Yeah, I like to have fun. You want to celebrate my birthday? Yeah, I'll celebrate your birthday. Let's jump out of that airplane. No. (laughs) You have friends like that? I don't want to do that. They make you feel like a sissy until you do it. That's kind of what it's like to be a pastor. I, I am not a guy that likes controversy, I do not like to stir up trouble, uh, I do not like to look for fights, I'm not looking ever to pick a fight, but when you teach the Bible as a pastor, one of your callings is to teach the entire council of the Bible, and sometimes it means that you end up teaching on some highly controversial subjects. And we've been doing that so far in this series about God's perspective on all aspects of the family. Uh, We said in one of our very, very first weeks that the woman's role, a Christian's woman role in a marriage, is to look out for the best interest of, of her husband and to fit into his leadership of the home that God gave him, whether he deserves it or not, and that is so controversial. And then we said the very next week that the husband's role, the way that he leads is lay down his life, that he sacrifices himself for the benefit of his wife, even if she doesn't deserve it. That's highly controversial. And then we said that God hates divorce. That's offensive to 50% of Americans. And then we said that the number one job of parents is not to raise their kids, The number one job of parents is to maintain their own unity and to build their own romance and to keep themselves close so that they can be better parents. That's how you, that's how you are a good parent is when you maintain your unity and, and your closeness. And that is highly controversial in this culture that is driven by kids where parents defer to the kids instead of their own parents. And then we said that sex is great. Now that's not controversial. (laughs) Everybody in here thinks that, but we said sex is great within marriage. That's the boundary, that's the control for sex that makes it such a wonderful thing. And then we said last week that singleness is better than marriage for some people. And that's controversial. And so today we get to another highly controversial topic. Today it's homosexuality. Today it's same-sex attraction, that's what our culture calls it. And so in the series, we're talking about lies that we believe about various things. And today I have five lies that most people believe about homosexuality and God and the Bible. And the first one is this, that God hates homosexuals and Christians do too. That God hates homosexuals and God and maybe that's what you thought, that God hates them and Christians do too, and you're just waiting for Grace Community Church to talk about this subject, and so you could hate me so that you could walk out of this place and kick the feet off of your shoes and never be seen here ever again because this is a church that is filled with hateful people. Or maybe you're a Christian, you don't have same-sex attraction, and maybe you thought that your job as a Christian was to hate homosexuals. Well, I want to be clear this morning that God loves the homosexual, and so do we. God wants nothing but the best for the homosexual, and so do we. One of my very, not one of, the very first counseling appointment I had as a full-time pastor here at Grace Community Church, we get a phone call from a a guy from from a, a local college, and he calls to talk to a pastor. He doesn't attend Grace, never has been here before. And he calls up, and he's looking for a pastor. Well, I'm now the pastor of student ministries, and so they can forward the call to me. And so I get the phone call, and I talk with him, and it turns out that he is a gay man, about 20 years old, and he is in a relationship with another gay man, and they both attend a Christian university here in Southern California. And he happens to live here in Riverside. And so he's calling because he's wrestling with the dichotomy between what his school is teaching about homosexuality and the life that he's living. You could imagine the struggle that is going on in his life because of that. And so I make an appointment to meet with him the following week and I hang up the phone and I think to myself, why does my first appointment have to be this one? <laughs> could it be something else? Could it be anything else other than this? And so I, I prayed so much uh, about what to say to him. I, I wanted to show him love. I wanted to show him God's love, but I also knew that he needed to know what God thought on the topic uh, because he didn't call because he had heard about Nathan. He didn't say, hey, I heard you're such a great guy. You're so smart, and I want to know what you think. He didn't call for mm-hmm. that. He wanted to know what God thought on the topic. And so I prayed so much for wisdom and what to say and, and how I was going to say it in, in love. And so that, that summer afternoon that I met with him in my office, uh, we went through all the things that we're going to go through today. What I shared with him that afternoon is what I'm going to share with you today. Obviously, this is a little bit more of a formal presentation uh, style and that was a little bit more conversational, but everything that I said to him in that afternoon are the things that I'm gonna tell you today. And I can tell you that it was out of love. I loved him because I knew that God loved him. Jesus says this in John chapter three, he says, for God so loved the world. And he's not talking about the planet, you know, the crust and then the the mantle and and the core, and you know, he's not talking about that. He's talking about people, it says, for God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son, that is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and God in the flesh. He's not begotten like he was born from God, like he was um, God's um, offspring. This is one and only second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh that came to planet Earth, lived a perfect life, never sinned one time. He goes to the cross, dying on the cross for our sins. That's what we have sung today about that victory that we have in Jesus Christ. He raises from the grave, proving that he is God. And it says that whoever, and that's a big word, you know, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in this Messiah, whoever believes in this Savior, shall not perish. Meaning they won't experience the judgment for their own sin. They will not die in eternity in hell. Maybe live in eternity in hell. Uh, because that's the result of sin. The result of sin, the the payment for sin is death, eternal separation from from God in a place called hell. But because of this Jesus, anyone who believes in this Jesus will not experience that. They will not pay the penalty of their own sin. The Bible says, for all have sinned. All people have missed the mark. All people have done something wrong. It says, those who believe in him will not perish, but they will have eternal life. And then Jesus goes on to say, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. God loves homosexuals, and so do we. Many of you do have someone that you know that is living a same-sex attracted life in some sort of way and all sorts of terminologies that we have in our culture today. Some, people ha- some of you have them in your friend groups, and maybe you're here today and you're a homosexual. I'm glad that you're here today because I want you to hear what God has to say. And I don't want anybody to leave here confused about what God says about homosexuality, and this is the first one, that God loves homosexuals, and Christians are too also. Line number two, people are born homosexuals. Many have claimed that um, that the, the homosexual orientation is genetic. That it is born within a person, just like your hair color, you didn't get to pick that. Just like your skin color, you didn't get to pick that. Same, it would be your sexual orientation. You didn't get to pick that too. That that was built inside of you. That that was, that people are just born that way and that comes from two studies that were done in 1991 two studies that were the two scientific research studies on the the genetics of homosexuality interestingly 1991 lands at an interesting place in our history you remember for those of you who are alive during that time the 1980s at the beginning of the 1980s HIV and AIDS was was around the world in, in only a handful of people worldwide And then by the end of the 1980s, HIV and AIDS, 400,000 people were infected with HIV by the end of the 1980s. And you remember in that era that AIDS was considered a gay disease. Uh, uh, the disease of homosexuals. And so, so much money was poured into learning about the genetics of homosexuality. And then in the 1990s, we learned that it wasn't a gay disease, it was a sexually transmitted disease, it was a bloodborne disease. But by the end of the 1990s, it was the fourth largest cause of death HIV and AIDS. And so it was in this era, in 1991, where these two studies occurred. Interestingly, 1991 is when Magic Johnson declared to the world that he had HIV. Also the same year that Freddie Mercury said that he had AIDS, the very next day he died. So this is the era where these two studies occur. Uh, the first study is by Dr. Simon LeVay. This is the one that is most referenced when people say it is scientifically proven, or is it a scientific fact that is it has been proven that homosexuals have a genetic difference, and that they've been able to define differences that cause homosexuality. And so... What he did was he studied the brains of cadavers, homosexuals and heterosexuals. And he reported that a cluster of neurons in the brain generally was smaller in homosexual brains. And that cluster of neurons was generally larger in heterosexual brains. And you say, aha, there it is. There is the genetic mark right there. But for that to be true, 100% of the time, those little group of neurons would have to be smaller in homosexual brains and they would have to be larger in heterosexual brains. And what Dr. Simon LeVay reported was that 16% of homosexual little massive neurons were larger than heterosexuals and 14% of heterosexual neuron brain clusters were smaller than homosexuals. And so it doesn't prove a thing. As a matter of fact, the, this, this study was so widely claiming that this proved that there was a genetic cause, that, that I was born this way, that Dr. Simon LeVay, three years later, finally said this. He said, I did not prove That homosexuality is generic. I didn't show that gay men were born that way. The most common mistake people make in interpreting my work. Did you know that? The second study was done by Dr. Richard Pillard. He was the first openly gay psychologist in the US. And his study was slightly different. He was studying identical twins. After all, they're genetically identical. And, and he was trying to find out what, what was the pervasiveness of when one, when one identical twin was gay, wh- what were the chances of the other one being gay? Because if it was genetic, then 100% of the time, if one person was homosexual, then the other one would be, right? If it was genetic. And so he continues his study. And the results were astounding. The, the results were, were, were mind-blowing in their size. As a matter of fact, the results were so astounding that research th- since then have essentially debunked his study saying that he handpicked his select group of, of uh, identical twins to get the results that he wanted. I don't know if that's the case or not. We're going to give him today the benefit of the doubt. But the results were this, that 51% of identical twins. When one of them was gay, then the other one was gay too. That is an enormously high number. And everyone says, see, there you go. It's genetic. But for it to be genetic 100% of the time, does that make sense? It would have to be that way. If it was genetic, if it was built within them, it'd have to be 100% of the time. And so, since 1991, for the last 30 years, we have been desperately trying to find some genetic connection, some gene that causes homosexuality in people because we're just born this way. We're trying to prove it's born this way. And the largest study that was ever completed on this topic just concluded in September of 2019. Over half of a million homosexuals were studied, mainly through the 23andMe, you know, those genetic uh, testing kits that you buy over at, you know, Target and you want to, you know, know your life history. Well, they took took half of a million from homosexual men and women and they were studying the, the genetic code because you give them your genetic code, you give them your DNA. And so they studied it and here are the results. Here's an article from the results of that the results of that study is no single gene associated with being gay. We're desperately trying to find it. As a matter of fact, the bottom says the genetic analysis of almost a half a million people has concluded there is no single gay gene. We keep looking for it and we keep looking for it. and We have spent millions and millions of dollars trying to do that. But the Bible has a very easy answer for, I was born that way. Let me show it to you. It's in Romans chapter five. This is what Paul says in Romans five. He says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. See, here's what Paul would say. Paul would say everybody was born a sinner. That's what he would say. The homosexual, born a sinner. The heterosexual? Born a sinner. Everybody is born a sinner. Every single one of them. That's the one man there. That's that's Adam. Back in the book of Genesis, the sixth day of creation, he was created. And then not too long later, he and his wife Eve, they sinned. And then ever since then, that's where sin entered the world and death has passed to all men. For all of time that sin has passed from person to person to person, you're born with it. Yeah, you think you're born with it? Yes, you're born with sin. Absolutely, you're born with sin. Every single, single person is. And how do I know that? Who taught you to lie to your parents? Who taught you that? No one did. Who taught you to disobey your parents? No one did. Because it's built inside of us. It's born inside of us. Are you born with it? Yes, you're, you're born with it. And so when biblically in the Bible, when God condemns homosexuality, he's not picking on a group of people. He, he's not a homophobe. God's a, he's a sinophobe, right? He hates all sin. And we've already talked in this series about all sorts of kinds of sin that God has already called wrong. We've talked about single people having sex before marriage, that's wrong, that's sin. We've talked about married people in adultery, that's wrong, that's a sin. We've talked about married people having sex with their spouse and then being sexually selfish, that's wrong, that's a sin. We've talked about most cases of divorce being wrong, being a sin. We talked about, talk about lying being a sin and g- even our thought life. The Bible even says the things that we think can be wrong. And so in exactly the same way, having sex with somebody who is of the same gender, gender that is also wrong, that is also a sin. Paul says, yeah, you're born that way. We are all born sinners. And I get it. I realize what the argument is. I realize the argument is I was born this way. This is just the way that I am. Uh, I wouldn't pick it um, if I could this, this, is, this, is just, this is just what is coming naturally to me. And Paul would agree with that. Let me show you Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Have you ever experienced that? You, wanted, you know you should be doing something else, but you just don't feel like that's you, you know? Yeah. For the good that I want, I, the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing that I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but the sin that dwells in me, this is the exact issue that this guy who was calling me from this Christian universe, uh, they called me and then met with me from a Christian university, this was his issue. This was it. Is that, 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 he, he knew what was right and wrong, but, but his, his body was fighting against what was right and, and wrong. And so, are people born homosexuals? Bible would say no. Bible would say we're all born sinners. We are all born sinners, and God is the only one that can rescue us from that. Third one, biblical homosexuality was different. And let me explain. This is, g- is going to get a little deeper here. Now, for, for some of you, you can skip this one, and we'll get on to another two that you could identify with. But the idea here is that the biblical condemnation of homosexuality doesn't refer to what we experience today as modern homosexuality, where you have a, um, a, a man who loves another man in a committed uh, relationship, monogamous relationship, just between the two of them. Uh, There are some Christians that advocate for the idea that God doesn't denounce what we experience today as homosexuality only in certain eras and certain times and certain situations. And I wanna show you how this works and why they think that, and we're going to study it to make sure that we understand um, how the Bible works in this area. Because some of you aren't around Christians at all, typically, and you're not worried about um, how Christians defend the idea that God supports homosexuality. But some of you are in Christian circles, where your friends are going to use these exact arguments about why God supports homosexuality. And I want you to know how to understand the Bible. Okay, so that's why I asked you to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus. I've I've given you like 20 minutes to find it, okay? (laughs) So hopefully by now you've found it. Leviticus chapter 18. This one verse is quoted probably more than any others on this topic of homosexuality. Leviticus 18, verse 22. And this is what it says. It says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. And so obviously this is talking about homosexuality here. Nobody doubts that, that God is talking about a man going to bed with a male like he would go to bed with a female, and he calls that an abomination. And what some Christians will tell you, those that that want to accept homosexuality as being acceptable in God's eyes, what they will say is that this statement is culturally bound. That's the word that they'll use, that it's culturally bound. That this was written only to the Jews, only in a certain period of time, And it was only denouncing a certain type of homosexuality that was around pagan practices where you would uh, worship the pagan god by having gay sexual interaction with somebody else. And so this is a culturally bound passage, they will say. That this is only for Jews, only in this era, only for this specific situation. Does that make sense? That's the argument. And we look at that and we say, okay, I mean, I'm not trying to start a fight. I'm not trying to argue with anybody. I, I, I'm not trying to, trying to uh, swim upstream just for the sake of swimming upstream. Let's, let's look at this. Let's study it. So go, go down to verse 27 of Leviticus 18. Okay, in verse 27 it says, men of the land who have been before you. Okay, so let's put ourselves in this culture uh, in Leviticus 18 where God is denouncing it okay, for, for Israel. It's wrong and it's abomination. This homosexuality is wrong for Israel here. Okay? And so this is what God says. That there was a group of people who were before you. They were not Jews. They were not Israelites. As a matter of fact, they were Gentiles. There were men who lived in the land before you. There were men who lived in this area before you. Before you showed up, there were Gentiles. Another group of people who are here before you. And they have done all of these abominations. Now, what are all of these abominations? Well, we'd have to read the entire chapter for that. We don't have time for that. But let me tell you what these abominations were. He spends 10 verses talking about all sorts of weird kinds of incest. That was wrong. And then in verse 21, he talks about infant sacrifice. That's what these men before you did. And that was wrong. That was an abomination. And then he says, there's another one. There's bestiality in verse 23. And he said, those men that did it before you, that was wrong for them. And then he says, the homosexuality in verse 22, those men before you did it and it was wrong for them. And so if it's wrong for for the Jews and it's also wrong for Gentiles of another era before them, is it now culturally bound? No, it's not just for Jews. And it's not just for that era, and it's not just for pagan worship, because we can see that this is an abomination to God when other people did it in another era for other reasons. So can you see how it's not culturally bound? But that's not it. Look at verse 29. In verse 29, then it says, For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so will be cut off from among their people. Whoever's a big word. And so, here we are, where it's written in Leviticus. And God says, those men who came before you, it was an abomination. It was wrong. For you, it's wrong. And also, whoever practices all of these things, incest is wrong. I think you would agree that incest is wrong. For all of time. I think you would agree that infant sacrifice is wrong. For all of time. I think you would agree that bestiality is wrong for all of time. And then we get to homosexuality, and that's where things get hard. But God would say that it is wrong for all of time. And some people would say, oh, that is so, so Old Testament. That is so 6,000 years ago. And so Paul talked about it too. Paul talked about homosexuality quite a bit, actually. And in, in 1 Timothy, this is what he says in First Timothy chapter one, the Apostle Paul. In First Timothy chapter one, verses nine and 10. This is what he says. He says, "The law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious." And it gives a long list now of, of people, of descriptors of people who are rebellious. It says, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers and the mothers, for murderers and immoral men, and there's our word, our topic for today, homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. And so it's pretty hard for a Christian to get around this verse and say that Paul isn't saying that homosexuality is wrong. You can't. And so what Christians who support the idea that God um, does not denounce modern homosexuality, what they say this word means is actually this is denouncing um, male child incest in a, in a homosexual way. Or they say that this word here references uh, pagan prostitution. Um, or that this references in kind of an interesting way um, two men who, uh, who don't have the same love for each other. One man doesn't have a genuine love for the other man, and in some way there's some sort of emotional disconnect in it all. And so, that's, and so they'll say, that's what, Timothy, that's what Paul is talking to Timothy about, these other situations, not what we see here today as homosexuality. And so we say, okay, well, let's look at that. And so the Greek word for this, uh, this is the Greek word for it. Here's, here's our English word for it. This is the, the Greek word for it. You can notice the back end of that word is coitus. That's the word that we still reference as sexual interaction. And so this is the Greek word for it. And so let me give you the two definitions for this Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses. Definition number one, a male taking another male to bed like he would a woman. That's definition number one. A male taking another male to bed like he would a woman. That's definition number one for this. You're like, okay, well, it's gotta be the other one. (laughs) It can't be that. So here's the other one. A male that abuses himself by using another male. A male that abuses himself by using another male. so it's kind of hard to to take it any other way. Paul is not referring to incest because if he was going to talk about incest, he would have used a word for incest. There is a Greek word for that. And if he was going to talk about prostitution, then he would have used a word for prostitution. Interestingly, the word right before it where it's interpreted immoral men, that's where it's talking about the prostitutional side. And now we get to another kind of thing, which is homosexuality. Let's see, look at that bummer. God condemns homosexuality for all of time, for all of people, all of the time. Homosexuality is not a cross to bear that God gives people. I want to make this clear. It's not something where where, they have to, where someone just has to deal with it and God gave it to them and it would be wrong for them to follow through on it, but, but the imaginations in their, in their minds and their souls are okay. No, we, even, we already know that our thought life is already to be held captive too, that our thought life is all already held to the, to the high standard. Jesus says, if you even look upon a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And so if that's the same true, if that's true for heterosexuals, the same is true for homosexuals, right? And so it is a it is a lie to say that biblical homosexuality is different than what we experience today. It's all the same. It's it's all the same. Line number 4. Line number 4. That gay marriage and traditional marriage are the same. They're equivalent. Can't love is just love. When it's a man and a woman and they love each other, it's marriage. When a man and a man love each other, it can be marriage. When a woman and a woman love each other, can it be marriage? Love is just love. And when you have an equal amount of love, then you have an equally wonderful or terrible, how much ever love there is, a relationship. There are some terrible heterosexual marriages because there's not enough love in them. There's terrible homosexual marriages because there's not enough love in them. But love is just love is just love and can't can't love just be loved. As a matter of fact, just three days ago, Joy Behar on The View, this is what she said about uh, homosexual marriage, okay? It says, people are excited about Pete Buttigieg. Remember, you know, he's the the, uh, presidential candidate, uh, one of them right now on the Democratic side. People are excited about him. He's fresh, he's new, he's gay, he's a serviceman. He's married in a very, unless you're a homophobe, He's married in a very traditional marriage, you know, totally monogamous. This is our culture's view of marriage, that as long as two people love each other and there's monogamy between the two, why can't that just work out? And if it's not, then you're a homophobe if you think that, that it's not marriage. But God has already defined marriage long before the California legislature, Long before Joy Behar, God has already defined marriage all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter two. Now you can turn there with me if you'd like, or you probably have it about memorized after this series, but I'm gonna read it to you again because it's good to remember God's perspective on marriage. This is God's perspective on marriage beginning at verse 18 of Genesis two. The Lord God said, it's not good for a man to be alone, and so I'll make him a helper suitable for him. And so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and all the birds in the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. He's looking around. He's all alone. He sees all the men and women, uh, animals walking by. And he's like, where's the woman for me? And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man and then now we have a wedding ceremony where God puts them together and these are the vows of Adam the man this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man for this reason now the commentary continues about marriage for this reason the man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. And we notice in the, the first chapter, God says to them on their way out, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is marriage. One man being married to one woman becoming one flesh for life. God is not homophobic. He's not scared of homosexuals. He he loves homosexuals. We've already declared that that God loves people who are homosexuals. But God has already defined what marriage is, and so the guy who invents it gets to define it. And so, when we say that gay marriage is equivalent to traditional marriage, that is just not the case. I don't want you to believe the lie and slip into believing that all marriages are equal. They're not. A man and a woman being married together, becoming one flesh for life. That was God's design for your marriage and every other marriage. And finally, a final lie homosexuals can't change. That you can't change. I, I mean, this is who I am. I'm born this way. And so there's just no way that I can change. And to expect someone to change is cruel. To expect someone to change, to ask them to change, to, to, to give them the advice that they had changed, that is cruel and unusual punishment because after all, that is still just who I am. One blogger put it like this, pray away the gay is no different than dyeing one's hair, wearing colored contact lenses because the underlying condition remains the same. This lie is believed by most Christians also that you just can't change, that that's just the way that it is. Now, as a matter of fact, at the beginning of last year, Evan Lowe, Evan Lowe is an openly gay assemblyman who represents the Silicon Valley. Uh, Last year in 2018, he introduced Assembly Bill 2943. Some of you talked to me about Assembly Bill 2943 when that came around. And that was a, a bill that would ban what's called gay conversion therapy. Now, this isn't a Christian thing. I know the word conversion is there, is in that, and you might think this is a Christian term, but it's not. Gay conversion therapy is essentially uh, encouraging someone to change their, their orientation, to change their sexual orientation, to convert them from one orientation to another. And so Evan Lowe's Uh, assembly bill, the purpose was to ban, to make it illegal for any entity in California, including a church, to encourage somebody to change their same-sex attraction to opposite-sex attraction, that that would be illegal. And of course, the Christian community in in California, as soon as they heard about this, they started contacting their own assemblymen and contacting Evan Lowe to express their concern about this. Nevertheless, it passed both houses quickly. And the next step for that bill is to go to the governor's desk, and he had already signaled that he was going to sign it. But Evan Lowe did not do that. He did not take it to the governor's desk. He didn't press the issue because he knew that there were so many Christians that were concerned about it. He did not take it to the governor's desk. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful to him that that he didn't do that. He could have. It took a lot of guts for him to, to not take that bill to the governor's desk because he had a lot of people that were really pressuring him to get this bill signed. But he did not take it to the governor to get it signed, and so it died. Now, recently, many of you have mentioned to me that he is back here in 2019 with ACR 99. And ACR 99 is Assembly Concurrent Resolution. That's what ACR means, Assembly Concurrent Resolution. And what that means is it's not a law. Okay, so take it down a notch. (sighs) Okay, ACR 99 is not a law, but what he is introducing is that the assembly would agree together that gay conversion therapy is cruel. Because his mindset, the general mindset is a homosexual can't change. You you can't change. And so ACR 99 denounces the encouragement of someone to change their sexual orientation from one to another. And interestingly, there are Christians that are supporting this. As a matter of fact, a notable chaplain of a Southern California Christian university, not Cal Baptist, by the way, went to Sacramento and he is on record in support of this. I've watched um, his... Uh, sitting in front of the, the board supporting ACR 99. And the reason that he went is because he, like many Christians, believe that you just can't change them. That, that you just can't change your sexual orientation just like that. You just can't change. But the Bible says something completely opposite of that. And I want to show it to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what it says. It says, do not be deceived. Now we've got another long list. You notice that there's long lists of really big words, you know? But so here we go. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. There, that's the one we're talking about today. Now we can talk about all these other things than we do in other places. Right now we're talking about homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Whoa. Now, that is a strong statement, but an even stronger statement is the next one. Look at the next phrase, and it says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified but you were justified by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. I love this verse because you know what this verse tells us? That in this church, there is a biblical record of Christians in the church who used to be homosexuals. They used to be having sex before their marriage. They used to be having sex outside of their marriage and not only even sexual sins that they were doing all sorts of crazy things. They were addicted to alcohol. They were stealing stuff from from their employer. They were stealing stuff from their parents. They were stealing stealing stuff from 7-Eleven. They were stealing stuff from the IRS. Uh, Some of them uh, were greedy and, and selfish. That's what they were. That is a key word. But such were some of you because they had changed because of Jesus Christ's work in their life. Can God change somebody? The reason that I know that God can change somebody is because of those of you who are sitting here today, some of you used to be drunk and high on Sunday morning from the night before, right? And look where you are. God can change people. There's some of you in here today who are having sex outside of your marriage or you're having sex before you were married and now you stopped. Why? Because God is sanctifying you. He is changing you. Can God change people? Absolutely. Because there are some of us in this room who used to be pretty selfish and now we're less. (laughs) Can you look back in your life and can you notice that you were more selfish before and now you're less? Can God change somebody? Absolutely he can. God can actually change somebody. And, and I know that those people in this church, in Corinth, who are having sex before marriage, they were saying, hey, this is just who I am. This is just what my body is. I, 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 I didn't pick this This is what my body, just accept me for the way that I am. And Jesus said, uh-uh, this is not the way that it is supposed to be. It is to be another way. And so I'm glad that if you're a homosexual, I'm glad that you're here today. If, if you have ever been told any of these things you've been lied to, you've been lied to, God can change you. Now remember, I'm telling all of this to a guy sitting in my office <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, I don't want to get punched in the face. And so I, I didn't know how he was taking it. I didn't know if he was going to get angry at me, if he was going to yell at me, if he was going to hit me. I, I didn't know. And at the end, uh, I, I prayed for him And he left. I didn't know at all what he thought. You remember, he'd never attended our church before. Well, the next Sunday, the very next Sunday, it's when we were just in this building, you know, we didn't have this building here. And remember how you could see out, you could see who was coming in the parking lot when you just were standing in the lobby, you could see who was coming. Remember that? And so I'm standing in the lobby just talking, and I could see way out the doors, I could see him walking up. And I'm like, oh, no, (laughs) it's going to happen. Whatever it is, it's gonna happen publicly. And so he walks right in the doors and he locks eyes on me. And he comes right up to me, and I'm like, oh, where is security when you need him? And and he walks right up to me and he gives me a big hug and he says, Thank you so much for talking with me. And he goes and he sits down, and he listens to the Bible being taught and the gospel being declared for another time. That's exactly what he needed. He needed what the rest of us needed. He needed God to change him. We all need God to change us. And so if if there's someone in your life that that you love very much, but they're living a same-sex attracted lifestyle, I want you to hear everything that I've said. I want you to hear it all. God wants the best for them. And the best for them is that they would change their mind about who Jesus is. That is the best for them. That's God's will for them, that they would change their mind about who Jesus is. And secondly, and God wants them to change their own mind about their sexuality. That's what God wants. God wants both of those things, that they would change their mind about who God is and then allow God to change their mind about their sexuality because God can change people. That young man that met my office, he needed the same thing that we all need. He needed to put his faith and his trust in Jesus as his savior and allow God to justify him and to sanctify him, to change him, to wash him, to change his mind about things. And one of the ways that your mind is changed about things is by being around other people and other Christians where the Bible is being taught because the Bible is what changes our minds. And that's what he needed. That's what he needed. Just because he went to a Christian college did not make him a Christian. And just because you attend a church does not make you a Christian. You must change your mind about who Jesus is. I've already told you who he is. He's God in the flesh that has come and died on the cross for your sin. And maybe today, you need to make that change in your own mind. I'm going to ask all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? It just creates a little separation between you and the person next to you for just a minute. And this is what you could say to God. If you know that you're a sinner, if you know you've done something wrong, if you know that you've fallen short in just one area, and you now you know that you needed a savior, this is what you could say to him. You could say, Dear God, I know that, I know that I've sinned. And I realize that I need a savior to to save me from my sin. And I believe what that pastor says about Jesus. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he came to earth, lived a perfect life. I believe that he died on the cross for my sin. I believe he paid for my sin on that cross. And I believe that he rose from the grave proving that he is God. And so I put my faith and my trust and my belief in this Jesus. I need my sins washed away and my mind changed. Put my eternity into the hands of this Jesus, and the immediate promises that God will change your heart. God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, will come and live inside of you. Will help you live a life honoring to Jesus. He will be the one that changes your mind. God, I thank you for your Word, and I thank you that you'd be willing to tell us things that we would not be willing to tell ourselves. Thank you for the love that you tell it to us so that we could have the hope of eternity too. And that's why we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.